If I had 10,000 tongues, I could not praise him enough. For the rising of the sun until the going down of the same, salvation and glory and honor belongs to him. What a wonderful God we serve. Amen. Amen. We ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of John, chapter 8, verses 37 through 47. That's the book of John, chapter 8, verses 37 through 47. And if you found a sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by simply saying, He is wonderful. Bless his holy name. John 8, 37 through 47. And the word of God says this. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most under, importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated.
This morning's passage is about being the offspring of Abraham and about the virtues of being the offspring of Abraham. Uh, There should be some shared character traits that are passed along with the physical likeness when you belong to the same family. It was once said that we should be more concerned about our character than about our reputation because our character is what we really are while our reputation is merely what we want others to think we are. Will Rogers was known as a great comedian known for bringing joy and laughter, but he was a man who also knew how to weep. One day he was entertaining at the Milton H. Berry Institute in Los Angeles. This was a hospital that specialized in rehabilitating polo victims, polio victims and people with broken backs and other extreme physical handicaps. Now, of course, Rogers was there and he was had everyone laughing, even uh, the patients who were in the most severe conditions. But suddenly he left the platform to go to the men's room and Milton Berry followed him uh, to make sure he had a towel. When he opened the door, he saw Will Rogers leaning against the wall and weeping uh, excessively. Sobbing like a child, he said. You know, if you really want to learn what a person is really like, all you need to do is ask them three questions. What makes them laugh? What makes them angry? And what makes them cry? Rogers was weeping because of the pain he saw before him in the faces of the men and the women that he sought to bring joy to. He knew that even if they were laughing, this was only a momentary release from their pain. And he was trying to live out the faith uh, and the character that was taught to him by his father. He remembered that his father once told him, you should live in such a way that you would not be ashamed to sell your pet parrot to the town gossip. And he believed that this were, these were rules to live by and they were a fairly good test of the character, especially someone who called themselves a Christian. You know, I hear people say all the time that we need to get more angry today or that the time has come for us to practice militant Christianity. But I try to remind them of what James said in James 1.20, that the wrath of God does not produce the righteousness of man. What we really need today more than we need more anger, we need more anguish. The kind of anguish that Moses displayed when he walked down from the mountain spending time with God and he broke the tablets because he saw the people sinning before a holy God. We need the anguish that Jesus displayed when he cleansed the temple and then when he wept for the city saying, Oh Israel, Israel, how many times would I have just been like a chick or been like a hen taking care of her chicks, but you refuse to come to me. What we need to recognize is that 
there is a treasure to be learned from the relationship with our fathers. Roger said that he would like to pass on that treasure from his father so that it would merge with his children's future. There was a spiritual heritage there that he wanted to pass down with them and that he would never cease from trying to make sure they understood that he loved Christ and so should they. Here in our passage this morning, we see Jesus and he's challenging those who are saying that they are Abraham's offspring. But there's some confusion here for Jesus. He's saying, if you're Abraham's offspring, why do you seek to kill me? If you're Abraham's offspring, then why are you not doing the works of your father, Abraham? If you are Abraham's offspring, why don't you understand God's word? And if you're Abraham's offspring, then why can't you hear God's voice? And he comes to the conclusion that we will as well. It is because you are not of God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for being our Father. We thank you for instilling in us your character. Uh, it's happened through your precious Holy Spirit. We thank you for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hung, bled, and died for us to redeem us from our sins. We ask that you would teach us today to honor and give reverence to your word and to your truth. To build us up on every leaning side. To place a rod of iron in our backs that we might stand up for all righteousness and stand up against all evil. Mold us and shape us that we might show the whole world that we belong to the true family of God. We ask all of this in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. And one more time for the Holy Ghost. Amen. You see, these people before Jesus are claiming to be Abraham's offspring, but yet they're seeking at the same time to kill Jesus. Look at verse 37 and 38 here. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Look at two things in that last verse there. You see a capital letter when Jesus says he's speaking of his father because he's referring to God the Father, and then you see a lowercase f when he says you have heard from your father because he's saying your father is of this world. Your father is the devil. We see that these Jews had tied their lineage and their freedom to their status of being the seed of Abraham. We saw in John eight thirty three when they said, they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you said we will become free? So Jesus now turns to that question. He recognized that the Old Testament speaks 
of the physical descendants of Abraham, but being a physical descendant of Abraham was not sufficient enough to be an heir of Abraham. Go back to Genesis 21, 18, or rather 8 through 13 for a moment. Genesis 21, verse 8 through verse 13. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had bore to Abraham laughing. Now, when it says laughing here, it's really that it was mocking. It's in a mocking sort of way, okay? So she said to Abraham, this is Sarah. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Now, Paul picks up on this point in Romans 9, verses 9, 6 through 8, and he says it this way. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all of the children of Abraham are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not, listen to this, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul wants to show us that yes, Ishmael is a son, but Ishmael is a son of the flesh. He's not counted as a son of the promise because it was God that made a promise to Abraham and Sarah that you will have a child even in your old age, even though your wife has been barren forever. That was the promise. That person will be counted as your true descendant. And even though many Jews had failed to believe in God, God's promise to them had not failed. But he never promised that every Jewish person would be saved. So now we see Jesus acknowledges that, okay, you are Abraham's descendants, but not at a real level because your behavior doesn't show that you are children of Abraham. Far more than that, you don't have the capacity to believe me whom God has sent or believe my teaching. And because of that, your behavior, your conduct, your moral standing uh, they do not attest to your parentage. So Jesus starts to question the integrity of their profession of faith. And he says these words that are stunning. 
My word finds no place in you. If they were claiming to be Abraham's offspring, if they were claiming that Abraham was their father, then why doesn't the word of God, the world, the word of Abraham's father, find place in them? John 3, 11 through 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Look what Jesus is doing here. He's contrasting his conduct against their conduct to show their true paternity. Jesus is saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the son of God, but I can do nothing of my own accord. I do only what I see my father doing and whatever the father does, I do likewise. And if you are children of Abraham, whatever your father does, you should do likewise as well. So according to that principle that Jesus just laid out. He does not understand if they are truly children of Abraham, why are they acting the way they are? Why do we act the way we do? If God is truly our father, how does hatred and jealousy for one another ever well up in us if we both have the same father? How can there be a divide in the body of Christ if we all are Gentiles? When we see here verses 39 through 41a, Jesus is saying, okay, if you're Abraham's offspring, then why don't you do the works of your father? Look at John 8, 39 through 4. 41a, John 8, 39 through 41a. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your fathers did. Lowercase f again. So what is he referring to? He's referring to their father, the devil, okay? So the Jews bring up this stern protest, this absolute claim. Abraham is our father. And then Jesus responded by he reiterates the fact that, okay, spiritually, morally, behaviorally, and you show no kinship to Abraham because you're not doing the works of your father. In fact, you are diametrically opposed to what Abraham was doing. Abraham obeyed God's voice. Abraham showed faith and it was a credit to him as righteousness. Abraham 
follow the requirements, the commandments, the decrees, and the laws of God. But pastor, what were the works that Abraham did? Well, let's take a minute. Let's just take a minute to have a small snapshot of Abraham. You, do you recognize that a, aside from Moses, there is no other New Testament character that is mentioned as much as Abraham is in the New Testament? Abraham is known as God's friend, a title that no one else receives in all 66 books of Scripture. All those who are believers, you and I, are called children of Abraham. We see that Abraham's life takes up a good portion of the narrative in Genesis. We see it mentioned, we see him come on the scene when he's 75 years old. It tells us that he was born in Terah and lived in Ur, an influential city in Mesopotamia situated around the Euphrates River between the head of the Persian Gulf and what is now known as the modern city of Baghdad. We see here in Genesis 12, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the call that God gives out to Abraham. The Lord says to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse them. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God calls Abram out of his home, makes three promises to him that he will give him the land as his own, that he will make him a great nation, and that he will bless him. This is Abrahamic covenant that we see established in Genesis 15 and then ratified in Genesis 17. But you know what really makes Abraham special? What really shows the works that Abraham performed is the simple fact that Abraham obeyed God. Genesis 12 and 4 records the fact Abram did as the Lord had told him. Hebrews 11 and 8 says it this way. By faith, Abraham will, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. How many of us would just pick up, jump in our car or RV if the Lord called us and told us, I want you to go to a place that I will tell you. He doesn't even give you the initial directions of where you're going. He just says, go. And Abraham left. And you know something else that's amazing about Abraham that I don't know why we don't cover more? Abraham, look at his background religiously before the call. He worshiped 
the Babylonian gods. He was a pagan. Abraham was a Gentile that God made into a Jew. Abraham believed the promises of God and that faith was accredited to him as righteousness. His faith would be regularly tested. He was promised to have a son in his old age and promised a son even though his wife had been barren. And then we see that happen in Genesis 21. But then we see something else in Genesis 22. God asked Abraham to sacrifice that same son that he had waited decades for. And again, Abraham responded faithfully. But God had a ram in the bush. And when he went to strike his son with the axe, he told him, no. Now I know that you trust me in all things. In the mountain that he goes to worship and to slaughter his son is years later the same mountain that now is called Calvary. And the ram in the bush is Christ Jesus that comes in our stead that we might be made whole. You see, the point of Genesis 22 is really a question for our lives. Abraham's faith made his love for God greater than the gift that God gave him. Do you love things that God has given you more than you love God who is the giver? Because if you do, you place those things in danger just like this son. Because there can be nothing that comes before a holy God. Now, I understand. I've read the whole Bible. We, we see here that there are times that Abraham's faith failed. It failed when he had the son with Hagar. It failed in two incidents when he said his wife was his sister to protect himself and almost put a curse on those who were about to lay down with his wife. His faith was not flawless, but it was faithful. There were times that his lack of faith demonstrated folly, demonstrated some foolishness. But he was still called throughout his life the father of the faithful. So we can trust in the words that Abraham has done because most importantly, Abraham obeyed. When he was asked to leave his family, he obeyed. When he was asked to sacrifice his son, he obeyed. We need to recognize that when God asks us to do something, obedience is not, obedience is not optional. And we are to react the same way in every case that Abram reacted. Abraham, what did he do? He reacted immediately. That's when we know that we trust him with everything. Because God can be trusted. 
Jesus now challenges them at an even deeper level in verses 841b to 43. I want you to listen to these verses, and I want you to listen deeply and look at the backstory that's going to develop here when Jesus uh, deals with them at this deeper level. John 841b through 43. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God was your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. The Jews here didn't appreciate Jesus' insistence that their conduct, their behavior, their moral standing disavowed any claim to be Abraham's children. And now he makes a charge that they are spiritual or really physical bastards. And look how they respond. Wait a minute. We were not born of sexual immorality. Now, you, you really have to look at the backstory here. Because they're confronting Jesus and saying, Now, Jesus, I know you don't want to talk about illegitimacy in births here. Because I'm not the one that had a mother that was engaged to Joseph. And that he was told by many to put her away. But then an angel said, no, the baby she had is a baby that came through the Holy Spirit. And you want to talk about our parentage? Because remember, they didn't believe that. So they are really having a hard time with him coming at them in this particular way. And then there were some other irregularities here. Uh, Later on, when we get down deeper into John 8, we will see that Jesus was once charged with being a Samaritan. And because of that, you know, Jews and Samaritans had uh, dubious parentage. And the Jews thought that the Samaritans, rather, they felt that Satan had seduced Eve to produce Cain. So they said, okay, now if we look at that and he's a Samaritan, now we understand why there's some concerns about his background. And then when they said, we were not born of sexual immorality, we have one father dash even God, they're saying, I know you're not talking to me. Because scripture clearly says in Exodus 4 and 22, Israel is my firstborn son. Jeremiah 31 and 9, Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. And I am Israel's father. God is saying, I am Israel's father. So you may be denying me parentage from Abraham, but you most definitely can't deny me parentage from God. So Jesus, in 42 here, he doesn't deny the truth of the Old Testament. 
He doesn't deny the truth of the text, but he denies their applicability to it. He's explicit again that the reason that he's saying that they could not be Abraham's offspring is because they shared no spiritual sonship with Abraham. And the one thing they truly lack is they lack love for him. Jesus says, if you love me, you would know that I represent my father. If you love me, you would know that I do nothing on my own accord and only what my father has shown me. If you love me, you would know that I am he that my father has sent. All through Jesus' ministry, he shows his subordination to his father. So Jesus can only conclude here that because they don't enthusiastically embrace him and they don't love him, they don't know his father. Remember what 1 John 5, 1 through 2 says? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So just by implication here, if they don't love him, they can't love God. So Jesus gets down here in 43 and now he's going to challenge them once again. Why do you not understand what I'm saying to you? It's because he asked the question and then he answers it. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Back in 42, he's already hinted at the fact that there's a fatal flaw in their character because they oppose him. Now it becomes clear even before he takes us to verses 44 and 45 where he's going to make it explicit when he tells them that their father is the devil. The charge here is that you do not understand what I'm saying. And if you don't understand what I'm saying, there is a language problem. Lalia means spoken speech in the Greek. And Jesus is saying, you are acting as if I'm speaking another language. You cannot hear me. Now, this is important in Greek. Akuo means to hear. But akuo also has an understanding that if you hear what I'm saying, the natural reaction is to do what I've said. I mean, we do it. How many times have you told your kids they're doing something that displeases you? And you say, did you not hear me? What are you saying? You're saying, I told you something, and you're still behaving just the opposite. Because if you heard me, then you would do what I said. You see, the fault here doesn't lie with Jesus. Jesus is not a bad communicator. The fault lies with those who don't have ears to hear. 
Those who cannot understand, if I don't understand you, I can't obey your message. If I'm not spiritual and I don't understand spiritual things, I can't obey your message. I can't follow your instructions. They are unable to hear because God's word finds no place in them. And you need to pull out your compacts right now and look at yourself and say, does God find, does his word find some place in me? When God says move, do I move? When God says no, do I cease and desist? When God says give, do I give? Or do I just say, well, you know, Lord, I can't afford it this week. Wait a minute. God has never asked you to give him anything that you couldn't afford because everything you got, he gave you. Don't you know he knows what he gave you? And what you have? And that you're lying? Does God, if his word finds place in you, does he control your behavior? Does his word compel you to seek his will? Does his word constrain you and commit you to deny yourself? Are you able to hear the words that God is saying to you? Lastly here, they're not Abraham's offspring because they don't belong to God. Look at what it says here in John 44 and 47, Jesus always <laughs> compassionate, but always confrontive. I, I don't know where we get this meek and mild stuff from because Jesus was always in your faith. He's polite, so he must be from the South, but he's, he was always confrontive. Look what he says. You are, your, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convinced me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus has clearly established the fact that if God were their father, that they would love him. There's already been applied this Holy Ghost paternity test, and they've come up wanting. But now he says, you belong to your father, the devil. And then he says, this word desire and your desires, you're seeking to do the will, the desires of your father. 
epithumia. Epithumia means natural lust, negative desires that come from your flesh. So, Pastor, what are these desires that Jesus is talking about? Well, he only mentions two here. He tells them, number one, that their father, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. So this is a reference to the fall of Adam and Eve uh, by the devil's successful temptation that the devil robbed Adam of their spiritual life and brought them the death of the whole entire race. This deals with the fourth chapter of Genesis where you see the first murder of Cain and Abel. Paul speaks of it this way in Romans 5 and 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We were all sinners because our daddy sinned. Because Adam sinned. When Adam fell, we fell right behind him. All of humanity fell. Romans tells you that even creation failed and is continually groaning to get back to the point it was before sin entered the world. Have you ever wondered why uh, Peter is not saying we're going to have a flood like they did in Noah's time? He says, no, fire next time. Because all of this has to be purified and it has to be purified by fire. It has to be brought to naught that he will bring what is again. He who was, he who is, and he who is to come. Then he tells us that the devil long ago abandoned truth. For there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Because he's the father of lies. He was lying in Genesis. He told Eve, you will not surely die. When God had clearly told Adam, don't eat from that tree or you will surely die. Either God was lying or the devil was lying. And we know that it's the devil because I love when it says, there is no truth in him. So he can't stand for truth because it is not in him. Is that the reason we can't stand for some of the things we should be standing for because it's not in us? That character, that nature, that understanding. You know, when Jesus speaks... He's tied to the truth. But when the devil speaks, spontaneously he gravitates to lying. I mean, that's, that's one, of it. one of the flaws that I like about the devil, that if I hear him, I know he's lying. If he's saying this is going on, I know it's a lie. But there's a tragedy as well in the lives of the devil because he's able to deceive some and, afford, and cost them not to hold to the truth. 
But Jesus says there, I th- this clause here is not conclusive, but it, it's more casual. He says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. He says that versus although I tell you the truth, because you would, the, the conclusion would be you would believe me. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus knows that the children of God who are really children of God will love the truth. They believe in Jesus. The children of the devil will all be characterized by lies. They will never accept the truth. And this passage really does a good job of explaining belief. But what is missing here for me is that it does not explain it. It explains unbelief. It doesn't explain belief. But if you think about it for a moment, how do rebellious people that the scriptures say have been chosen out of the world by God, how do they ever come to belief in the truth in a time where they were unbelievers and anything told to them about the truth of God, they will reject? I think we see this answered beforehand in probably chapter 6 and then repeated in um, chapter 8, 47. I think when we look at what Jesus says in John 6, 44, that there was a necessity for the Father to draw us. No one can come to the Father unless he draw no one comes to me unless the father draws him then it speaks of in 37 637 all that the father gives me none of them will be cast out so everyone that comes that means they came because they were drawn and they will never be cast out And then in 645, it talks about all who come have been taught and learned from God. And then if you go down to 6 and 70, it says all have been chosen by Jesus. So we see that there is a strong divine initiative here that is explained powerfully in John 6. And then we see it again in John 8. This teaching really strips away any grounds that you and I have for boasting, any grounds that you and I have for arrogance because we believe. But at the same time, it challenges those who do not believe and it threatens them at the very core of their life. It threatens them and compels them to reconsider their belief in Jesus Christ. And then we see Jesus as he applies this rhetorical question, sometimes which is misunderstood. He says, hey, which one of you convicts me of sin? He's not asking them whether they think he's guilty of sin because we know some of them thought he was guilty of sin, that he broke the Sabbath, that he was speaking blasphemy, that he was saying he was equal for God. But what he's saying, which of you can prove that I'm a sinner? And they came because he's a sinless God. Jesus 
brought up the same kind of question in John 18, 23, when Jesus says, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I say is right, why do you strike me? He's making sure they recognize that because of his perfect holiness that's been demonstrated throughout his whole life, that the purity of his life before a holy God, the sinlessness of his life before a holy God, that no one could convict him of sin because he had not sinned. What does 2 Corinthians tell us? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. They had to take a time out here and use the best theological minds to say, well, you know, if we can't dispute this guy's teaching and we can't marshal any convicting or convincing evidence that he is sinned, then maybe we should question not him, but question ourselves. That's why he says, if I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? And then he answers the question, because everyone who belongs to God hears the word of God. And if you don't hear me, it's because you don't belong to God. If you don't hear the deposits that are happen, happening moment by moment into your very spirit from the Holy Spirit, it's because you don't belong to God. If you don't feel the restraint in your life when you go to seek your own pleasures, your own desires, and doing what you will it's because you don't belong to God. If you cannot be faithful to a holy God who is always faithful to you, then you don't belong to God. In fact, you might just be an illegitimate child. Turn with me to Hebrews 12 for just a moment. Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11. Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11. Consider him, personal pronoun here refers to Christ Jesus. Consider Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Now, you know, right there he clearly says, if you're having a pity party because you're dealing with trials and tribulations, Jesus already told you in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trials or tribulation and be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. But you have not suffered to the point that you have shed your own blood as he had on the cross. Hebrews 12 and 5, going through 11. Have you forgotten 
the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And look at eight. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. How many times in your own household, your son and your daughter does something and you chastise and they say, well, Mark was doing it. And you say, I don't care what Mark does. Mark is not my child. You're my child. And sometimes we get jealous of other sinners who are firmly in sin when they are behaving in a way that we used to behave in and we're thinking nothing is happening to them. Why am I living such a chaste and faithful life and nothing is happening? That's because they're illegitimate children. They're going to deal with theirs by and by, but he's not worried about that. He's worried about you. And what you do. Pick it back up at 9 and 11. We're going to close with this. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who discipline us and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits? Capital F. So that's the Father God of Spirit. Small s. That means us. Be subject to the Father of spirits and live. For they discipline us for a short time as it seems best to them. But he, personal pronoun refers to God, but God disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And I'm going to check your adult here quickly here. If you have never gone back to your parents and thanked them for some of your butt whoopings, you are not fully mature in Christ yet. Because if you have your own children, you think what that incident saved you from going further. You didn't catch it at the time. But now you fully understand that that was appropriate and needed to protect your life. Only those who hear the words of God respond to the word of God. And if you don't hear his words, you are not of God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love you and praise you, and we thank you that you've given us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart uh, that can be palatable, molded to your will, and a mind that is searching to love you even the more. 
So Lord, build us up on every lean side and let us recognize how important it is uh, to give you uh, total authority in our lives for there is none like you in all the earth. It is in the precious name of your son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.